0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to begin by thanking Micah and Tom and Alton Pickett for being here in my absence. I was away in Dallas picking up my wife, and then I spent a little time bashing my head into wooden objects, and so I'm just recovering from all of that, the drive and the bashing, And now my task is to get you all back in the mind frame of Romans 4, but don't turn to Romans 4 yet. While I was in Dallas, I was speaking to someone who is a regular listener of GCA. I suffer under the delusion that once I have said something, and it's in the archive, that there, that's done. You know, I've, I've said that. I've put that out there. There, that's finished. Much to my surprise and chagrin, it turns out not everyone has listened to everything in the archives. What a surprise. And I know that we're picking up new listeners all the time. And so while I was talking to this person in Texas, they were asking me, questions about the Abrahamic covenant and what the difference is between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant and the other covenants in the Old Testament and so much of what Paul is saying in Romans 4 and continuing on really all the way through Romans 11, so much of it is based on the common Jewish knowledge of their history and their covenants and particularly the Abrahamic covenant that I think I would be mistaken if I just sort of assumed that everybody in the room and everybody listening on the internet just kind of knows all that stuff and that I can just reference it in shorthand and just keep moving. I really should not do that. In order to give you a fuller understanding of what Romans 4 is about, you really have to be clear on what the Abrahamic covenant is about. And I know a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, I know that I touched on it, and I know that I showed you in Genesis where the first recitation of the Abrahamic covenant was. But there's more to it, and so much, again, of what Paul is going to say in Romans 4 is foundationally built on the Abrahamic covenant. So we, being 21st century Gentile Christians, we don't have that history. We don't have that background. We didn't grow up with the knowledge that we were the particular people that were the descendants of Abraham that we going to share in the Abrahamic covenant. But those are the people that Paul is writing to are the people who have that history, that background, those promises, those covenants, those prophets. They know all that. And so I think we do ourselves a disservice if we just read the book of Romans without the background knowledge of the Abrahamic covenant. What we're going to get is a surface understanding of what Paul is driving at. And so this morning is going to be largely review. So if at any point I lapse into stuff that you know already, just get a nap or something. I'll understand if I see you dozing. But we are going to start back in the book of Genesis again. Turn to Genesis 12. Because Genesis 12 is the first recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Now you've heard me say several times... That the Abrahamic covenant is repeated seven times in the book of Genesis. And we're gonna look at all seven recitations this morning. And it's originally said to Abraham, it's originally promised to Abraham, which is why we call it the Abrahamic covenant. But then it is given to his son, and then it is given to his son. So it's passed down from Abraham to Isaac. To Jacob it is not changed as it moves through those generations outside of there's additional stuff added to it but the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant remains the same as it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob Jacob then has 12 sons and the question is well then which of the 12 sons receives The Abrahamic covenant to understand how that works out. You have to understand for the first time he divides the Abrahamic covenant for everything you're going to see of the Abrahamic covenant. You will notice that there are two distinct categories of the covenant. One of them is spiritual and it includes things like through your descendants. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So Jew and Gentile, every nation, all the families of the earth, they're all going to be blessed through your descendant. That is an obvious reference to Christ himself. That when Christ himself comes, this is no longer just a Jewish enterprise. This is now something that branches out to the Gentiles. And therefore, and thereby, all of the families of the earth are truly being blessed through a descendant of Abraham that spiritual promise can be traced but that spiritual promise when Jacob is handing out the distribution of the Abrahamic covenant to his 12 sons that bit of the promise goes to Judah law giving belongs to Judah Messiah is going to come through Judah Shiloh's is coming through Judah But, as far as the physical end of it, because there is a physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, and that physical aspect is land promise. You're going to get this land in perpetuity. You and your descendants, it's always going to be yours. Okay, that land promise is not given to Judah. Instead, it is given to the tribe of Ephraim who isn't even one of the 12 original sons of Jacob, Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph. They were the grandsons of Jacob. And so Jacob is very clear in saying that the birthright promise, the physical promise, belongs to Ephraim. But lawgiving Shiloh, Messiah, belongs to Judah and for the first time the Abrahamic covenant is divided between its physical aspect and its spiritual aspect I'm going to show that all to you this morning I'm going to prove all that and this was something that was so well known among the Jews that it's plainly stated in the book of first chronicles when they are listing the genealogy of Abraham they take the time to say that the birthright promise belongs to Ephraim, but then the promise of Shiloh, the promise of Messiah to come, that spiritual promise belongs to the tribe of Judah. And we, 21st century Gentiles, we're not as aware of that anymore. But it's clearly stated in the Bible, so we need to know that. Just because we can find the fulfillment of the spiritual attributes of the Abrahamic covenant, which we can find. Christ did come. All the families of the earth are blessed. Christ is coming again. And I'm going to show you in the New Testament that even the arrival of Christ is part of the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant. That's how important the Abrahamic covenant is. But just as sure as the spiritual end of the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled and is being fulfilled, it's just as sure that the physical end is going to be fulfilled, which means that God did not lie when he said to Abraham, This land is yours in perpetuity. Because as we've seen, especially on Wednesday nights, as we've been looking through the Old Testament chronologically and we've been looking at the prophets and what they say, they all to a person say that God is going to regather Israel, all 12 tribes, and bring them back to that land because that was the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The forefathers received that promise, therefore that promise must happen. Hasn't happened yet. But then again, in the 400 years where God was silent before Jesus came, the other part of the Abrahamic covenant hadn't happened yet. That didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. Then Jesus comes on the stage of history. He fulfills that part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is, to my way of thinking, a sure guarantee that the rest of it is going to be fulfilled. That's right. So, God is going to one day regather all 12 tribes of Israel and give them the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which land, by the way, is a whole lot more than Israel as it stands today. That sliver of land over there in the Middle East right now only represents a portion of what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I am convinced that he is going to do all the rest of it as well. Paul is convinced that God is going to do all the rest of it as well. It is his confidence in the Abrahamic covenant and God's justification of Abraham in exchange for his faith that is the very underpinning of all Pauline theology of how justification occurs. But that's all based in Abraham. It's all based in going back to the book of Genesis and saying, you see this promise that God made to this guy? Well, these promises are sure and certain because he was justified by faith. So then in the New Testament, no surprise that justification comes by faith. Because the promises that God made to Abraham are sure and certain. So sure and certain that Christ actually came. You get it? Yes. You understand the argument so far? Yes. Okay, good. Are you in Genesis 12? Yes. If not, why not? I've talked long enough that you could have gotten there by now. Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. This is the first telling of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those that bless you. And the one that curses you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham did that. He got up, he took his family, and he went until God said, this is it. This is the land that I promised you. Now flip forward in the book of Genesis to chapter 15. This is the second telling of the Abrahamic covenant. God has made a promise to Abram actually starting in chapter 14 right around verse 19 we hear about Melchizedek the king of Salem who I am convinced is a Christophany which means that Abraham before he received the blessings of God had to interact with Christ I just find that interesting but then chapter 15 begins with a recitation again of the Abrahamic covenant. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou has given me no offspring, one born in my house is going to be my heir. (laughs) Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, this Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him, God took Abram, outside And said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, How may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Abram would have recognized this as forming a covenant. He would have known that this is the way covenants were formed. Take an animal, cut it in half, divide the two halves, and the two members of the covenant, the two people that are making the agreement, pass through the animals, the agreement being, if I don't keep my half of the covenant promise, this is what you'll do to me. But in this case... God makes sure that Abram doesn't try to pass through the animals. Because it's not Abram's obligation to keep any portion of the covenant. It is what we refer to as an unconditional covenant. It's something that God says he's going to do based in himself. And very, very importantly, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible... Check me on this. I've checked it. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever rescind this promise. It's a promise he makes by himself, with himself, and at no point does he ever say, never mind. The covenant remains good because the covenant is based in the unchanging nature of God himself. Therefore, the promises that are included in the covenant are still good, which is why the prophets could all say, God's going to do this. God's going to bring us back to this land. God's going to restore the 12 tribes. God is going to do this because he said so. It's a unilateral, it's a unilateral covenant. made it with himself. Exactly. Verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Did that happen? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They were driven into Egypt, and there they served as slaves for 400 years. Verse 14 but I will also judge the nation whom they serve. Did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Pharaoh and all his armies were drowned in the Red Sea to say nothing of the multiple plagues and the killing of the firstborn. So God actually did judge the nation that held Israel captive. And afterwards, they, your descendants, will come out with many possessions. Did that happen?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so far, everything God has promised Abram happened, right? Right. Why would we believe that the rest of it is not going to happen? God already has a proven track record of fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. All the way up to Christ came. Verse 15. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you're going to pass away. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So I'm going to bring your descendants back here to the land that I promised you. They're going to wipe out the Amorites. I'm giving the Amorites 400 years so that they can really build up their iniquity and really be guilty And then I'm going to bring your descendants back, and they're going to inhabit this land. Did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. That occurred. God continues, not only promising in advance, but showing us in his Bible and in history how he kept all those promises. Verse 17, and it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. Did Abram pass between the pieces? No. No. What's he doing? He's asleep. He's seeing the vision. But he's not passing through the pieces because God himself is forming a covenant with himself. On that day, verse 18, just so there's no confusion about it, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So God formed a covenant by himself, with himself, and gave it to Abram. Was Abram party to the covenant? No. So then what would Abram have to do to break the covenant? He can't. Because he, can't, he wasn't party to it. God alone is party to it, which means God alone is the only one that can break it. And since God is faithful and the same yesterday, today, and forever, there's no way that God is going to break a promise that he made with himself. Is that obvious enough? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt. That's all the way down to the Nile. As far as the great river, the great river Euphrates, which is all the way out into what is modern-day Iraq. The Kenite and the Kenazite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. All the land that belongs to all those people groups is all going to belong to you and your descendants in perpetuity forever. Have they ever inhabited the entirety of that land. No. no. Do they have to? Yes. Yeah they have to. For God to be honest. Okay so that's the second telling. Go to chapter 17 now. This is when Abram was 99 years old. It tells us. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. I am God Almighty. By the way, anytime God uses that as his own proper name, he's doing it on purpose to point out that he can do anything he wants. Nobody can stop his hand. Nobody can ask him, what are you doing? I am God with all the might. I'm God with all the power. He said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. That's what he said the first time. Go outside, count the stars, look at the sands of the sea. If you can count them, that's how numerous your descendants are going to be. God repeats it again. I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. This is not our covenant. This is not an agreement that we both made between us that you have to keep some portion of. This is my covenant I made with myself, but I'm giving it to you. I've promised it to you, Abram. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be Abram, which basically means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So now God has stretched it beyond just a promise he's made to Abram. He said, I'm going to establish this covenant with you and your descendants through all their generations in perpetuity for all time. It's an everlasting covenant. And yet there are folk who will tell you that God's essentially done with that part of the covenant. The land, Israel, regathering, all that. No, he doesn't mean any of that anymore. It's being fulfilled in some spiritual way in the church. The Bible never says that. Being the staunch biblicist that I am, I can only say what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is the Abrahamic covenant belongs as an everlasting covenant to the descendants of Abraham. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Can you understand now why even today there is still a land skirmish going on in the Middle East around Israel? Because the people that are there who know their own history know this is our land forever in perpetuity people keep trying to take it from us people keep trying to bomb us into the sea people keep trying to drive us out but God himself God Almighty the God of our fathers has promised it to us forever in perpetuity and I contend that God is going to keep absolutely every part of that promise which is why my eschatology is the way it is Because there has to still be room for God to do all these things he said he's going to do. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession, I will be their God. God said further to Abraham. Now as for you. You shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. The reason I want you to see that is that God didn't add circumcision as the mark of the descendants of Abraham until the third recitation of the Abrahamic covenant and after Abraham had already been justified by faith. So first, Abraham was justified by faith. Then he was told what to do. The classic indicative imperative right there. First who you are, now what you do. You are already justified by faith, now circumcise your descendants to mark you As separate from the rest of the world. But the circumcision didn't accomplish justification. The circumcision was a mark of the justification he already had according to Paul's own theology. So Paul wasn't making anything up by the way. Paul is just simply reciting what his Jewish audience already knew. This is the history of Israel. This is the history of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the history of how justification is accomplished in the economy of God. Go down to verse 18. Abram still had not had the child Isaac with his wife, but his wife had uh, agreed, apparently that he could go into the tent with Hagar and that he could produce an offspring that way. I won't go into it in any depth right now, but that is a classic example of human beings hearing a promise of God and then thinking they need to work it out in their flesh. Yeah, I know what God has promised me. Don't worry, I'll go make it happen. God promised him a descendant. He knew that his wife was too old to have children he goes into the tent with Hagar, he produces Ishmael, and Ishmael has been a thorn in the side of Israel to this very day. The land skirmishes I talked about a moment ago, those are the descendants of Ishmael, continuing to fight with the children of Abraham. So, well, starting at verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee, He said, this is the one, I produce this one, accept this one, accept my works. Look, I made some fig leaves to cover up my nakedness. You'll accept that, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing, just that human nature to think, "I, I can do something, I can fix this, I can make this okay. So this is going to be the fourth recitation now of the Abrahamic Covenant. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So now God has moved the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham to Isaac. It's beginning to move now generationally. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Sarah's not even pregnant yet. And God has already named the child and said, Next year about this time, that's when Sarah's going to have the baby. That's the one I'm going to establish the covenant with. Hence that phrase, through Isaac thy seed shall be called. In other words, the genealogy leading to Christ doesn't go through Ishmael. It's through Isaac that your seed is called, that your descendants are called, and that the covenant promises are fulfilled. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all his servants who were born to his house, all who were born with his money and every male among the men of Abram's house. And behold, he began to circumcise them. So he was doing his part. But again, I keep stressing... His part did not justify him. The justification had already occurred. He was simply being obedient to what he was told to do. Very much like our situation. We are not justified by our actions, by our works. We are justified by the finished work of Christ. But having been justified by the finished work of Christ, we are then told what to do. And then we do it in obedience to the God that saved and justified us, to the God who placed us into a covenant in the blood of his son. Our response to being in that covenant relationship is to be obedient. All right, so then chapter 18, Isaac is promised. Go to verse 17 of chapter 18. This is the fifth recitation Of the Abrahamic Covenant. Are you getting a feel for the Abrahamic Covenant yet? Are you getting a sense of how important it is. To any Hebrew history. You have to know this stuff. In order to understand. Where Paul is drawing his theology. In Romans 4. And the Lord said. Shall I hide from Abram. What I am about to do since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's the recitation again of the basic fundamentals of the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then the Lord goes on to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which he chose not to hide from Abraham because he had chosen Abraham and given him that covenant. Now we're going to jump forward. Chapter 22 chapter 22 of Genesis we're going to start about verse 13 this is the sixth recitation of the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis how large does the Abrahamic covenant loom in the book of Genesis it's big it's a primary theme here when we were studying the book of Genesis I pointed out to you that stuff like the creation of the world, is said in a couple of chapters. Very quick. God made everything there. Man, woman, made everything. There you go. The fall, it's mentioned real quick. That, that happened. That happened. The book just keeps clipping along. Suddenly, there's many generations. And then seventh from Adam gets plucked up off the earth. And then Methuselah. Methuselah dies. And then there's a flood. And then the whole world is flooded. And everybody dies. That just happens real quickly at the beginning of the book of Genesis. By the time we get to Abraham, the book of Genesis slows down. And all of these chapters we've been looking at, this is all about Abraham. That is the primary theme of the book of Genesis. It's not primarily about how everything got created. That part's assumed. God made everything. But the God who made everything made promises to human beings. That becomes the theme. Okay, so chapter 22, let's start at verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, substitutionary atonement. By the way, a ram caught in a thicket, in other words, a ram with thorns on his head, do I have to draw a picture? It's clearly a typification, a symbolic representation of Christ. So before Abraham got the second recitation of the Abrahamic covenant, he came in contact with Melchizedek, who I said, I believe is a Christophany. Before he gets this recitation, as it's passed down to his children, he gets another symbol of Christ. People accuse us occasionally when we talk about future for Israel. They will say things like, Well, then you're talking about two different means of salvation, two different forms of salvation, one for Israel and one for the church. True, there's a different future for each. But in terms of how each is saved, there it is right there. Christ is right there. Christ was there in the Melchizedek blessing. Christ is right here in the ram, caught in a thicket. Christ is all through this story. The same way he's all through the church story. So I say, no, no, no. We're not ever saying two different ways of salvation. There's only one way of salvation. It's through Christ, whether we're talking about Israel or the church. But God can create a different future for each group, which is exactly what is described in the Bible. If you just let the Bible say what it says... That's what it describes. All right, so let's read. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this very day. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, because the first time he said, no, no, don't kill your son. By myself, the angel says, by myself, speaking for God, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Did you get that? By myself I have sworn. By myself I have promised this. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on what you do. It's not dependent on your reaction. By myself I swore. Do you think that when God says he has sworn something, do you think he intends to do it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sands of the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba. So there is the sixth recitation by God to Abraham of the covenant and the promises of the land, of the fact that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his descendant, Do you think by now Abraham's getting a pretty good sense of what this covenant's about? We need to have that same familiarity with it. We need to understand it on that level because everybody Paul is writing to in Romans 4 knows this stuff. All right, one more. The seventh recitation. So then Isaac comes along. Isaac gets married. Isaac has twins. Go to chapter 28. God prefers Jacob over Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. God then gives the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, not to Esau. The Esauites are still a problem to this very day in the Middle East, just like the Ishmaelites are. But God chose Jacob And he recites to him the Abrahamic covenant. All I'm trying to show you is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all received this promise. In its totality, in its completeness, they all received it. Starting at verse 11 of chapter 28 of the book of Genesis, he, Jacob, came to a certain place. He spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down in that place. That's a rough pillow, isn't it? Take a stone and put it under your head. And I'm talking to you from experience here, Jacob. Don't (laughs) knock your head into it. That's never mind. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. Okay, so he's speaking to the descendants. And he says, you're going to scatter out to the north, the south, the east, the west. And yet I'm going to be with you. And wherever you are, I'm going to bring you back here to this very land that I promised to your father, Abraham, that I promised to Isaac, that I'm promising now to you, Jacob. You're going to spread out to the west, to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Does it sound like God is serious about this regathering land thing? Yes. It's part and parcel of the Abrahamic, unconditional, never rescinded covenant. Do you get it? Yes. Yes. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome, how frightening is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Okay, so. We have to move quickly now. So this Jacob is the one who wrestles with an angel of the Lord, has his hip put out of place, changes his walk, his name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons by four different women. The youngest of those sons is ultimately Benjamin, but Joseph is his favorite. He gives Joseph the coat of many colors because he's the favorite. The other boys descend on him, ultimately sell him off, and he's taken into slavery. He is taken to Egypt, where he is a slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife thinks he's pretty good looking. He refuses to give in to Potiphar's wife's advances. She grabs his robe, pulls it off him, screams rape. He ends up in prison again. While he's in prison... It is made known that he can interpret dreams. Meanwhile, the Pharaoh of Egypt has a series of dreams that really, really concern him and upset him. And he says, Somebody has to interpret these dreams for me. And, and his cupbearer, who has been released from prison, says, You know, there's a guy in your prison who can interpret dreams like that. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh. Joseph tells him what it's about. That he had a dream of seven fat cows and then seven thin cows. And the seven thin cows ate the seven fat cows. And Joseph interprets it as there are going to be seven years of plenty here in Egypt. There's going to be lots of grain and lots of food and lots of man. It's all going to be good, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's ability and the fact that he clearly is in touch with the God of heaven that he says, what should we do about it? Joseph says, well, if I were you, I would build a lot of silos. I would start storing up grain during the seven years of plenty. Then when the seven years of famine come around, we can start distributing that. Pharaoh says, you're the man for the job. Makes him second only to Pharaoh in the amount of authority he has in Egypt. While he's in Egypt, Joseph marries an Egyptian woman and has children to her. Ephraim and Manasseh are half Egyptian going out the gate. Eventually then the famine gets so bad that it reaches up into Canaan. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt in order to ask for some food because they're out. God just orchestrating everything, orchestrating nature in such a way that he would bring about famine so that he could bring those boys in front of Joseph, who at that point is all dressed up Egyptian-y, and they don't even recognize him. Well, long story short, once he reveals himself to them, they become horribly afraid because they remember they're the ones that sold him into slavery, So, of course, now that he has all this power and authority, he's going to exact revenge on us. Instead, he says, you meant it for evil. That was your intention. But God meant it for good to bring about this present result. Many people are going to be saved alive. And God did that sovereignly through the evil that you did to me. Okay. So he says, bring my father to me. There's a little interplay before that concerning Benjamin and Reuben saying he's going to be the surety for Benjamin and everything. But eventually, Jacob, named Israel, is brought to Egypt to meet his son Joseph again, his favorite son, who is now the most powerful guy in Egypt, say Pharaoh. When he's there, he asks that the two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, be brought to him. Joseph understands that his father is about to hand out the birthright blessing. So the two children are brought in, but Jacob's eyes are dim. He can't see well. And so Joseph purposefully puts Manasseh, the eldest, on the right-hand side, so that when his father reaches out with his right hand to pronounce the birthright blessing, it will go to his eldest child. His father wittingly puts his hands like this, crosses his hands, and puts his right hand on Ephraim the younger's head. And Joseph argues with him No, not so, father. No, this is Manasseh over here. Jacob says, What I've done, I know. I know what I'm doing. He crosses his hands, he puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim and he pronounces the birthright blessing on Ephraim. Then he rises on his cane, he has his sons brought to him and he pronounces prophetically what the future of all 12 sons is going to be. And as he's going through those blessings on those 12 sons, he announces that Shiloh, Law giving the scepter belongs to the tribe of Judah. Turn to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 5. Are you starting to get a feeling like we're not going to make it to Romans 4 this morning? First Chronicles, very, very importantly, what's the book of Chronicles about? It's about the history of Israel, and it's about their genealogies, and it's about how they trace themselves back to Abraham. So chapter 5 starts, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn of Jacob. He should have received the birthright blessing. But now it's explained to us, That the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. To Ephraim and Manasseh, what I just described to you. So that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Birthright's very important. You have to be able to show genealogically that people were enrolled. They used to write it down to keep track of where the separate lands belonged, who inherited, who was the firstborn, who got the birthright. Reuben was not included in the genealogy of the birthright. Instead, the birthright, which includes all the physical blessings and the land promise, all went to the children of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh. But verse two, but Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came the leader, came the Messiah through whom Shiloh was going to come. That promise that was made by Jacob specifically to the tribe of Judah Judah prevailed over his brothers. And so that spiritual promise that Shiloh was going to come through him. So the families of the earth would all be blessed through the tribe of Judah. That's why Jesus came as a Jew through Judah. And why he is referred to repeatedly as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But, yet again, the writer of 1 Chronicles says, but the birthright belongs to Joseph. So there's the division of the Abrahamic covenant the spiritual end of the covenant through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed goes through Judah leading to Christ but the birthright blessing the land promise the inheritance belongs to the tribe of Ephraim now is Ephraim in Israel in the Middle East right now no no no, in fact, they're scattered exactly like God said He was going to do. He said, I'm going to scatter your descendants to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. That's what's happening right now. In other words, you can see the evidence in front of you in human history that God is keeping that promise right now. And they are scattered with the promise that God is not going to forget them, that he's going to remember them, that he's going to be their God, and that he's going to gather them again back to the very land that he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Am I alone up here? No. Turn to Luke 1. We're finally in the New Testament. We're getting closer to Romans. But now I want you to see that the Abrahamic covenant is the reason, is the basis on which Christ himself came to the planet, fulfilling the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And again, the Jews were very, very aware of this. They were aware that the Abrahamic covenant was the foundation for the promise of the Messiah to come through the tribe of Judah. That's why the genealogies exist in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke to demonstrate that this is the one who was promised all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Adam. So we are now in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 59. And we're going to read all the way to verse 80. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth She brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call his name Zacharias after his father and his mother answered and said, No, indeed, his name shall be John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. And he asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows. His name is John. That's because the angel of the Lord had told him, name him John. And then took away his voice. They were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came upon all those that were around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly upon him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. And accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he has spoken through the mouth as he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Saying, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant what covenant what covenant is he talking about he's talking about the abrahamic covenant that the very fact that the christ is come and that the forebearer is here he sees as a fulfillment of the holy covenant the abrahamic covenant it becomes more obvious in a moment To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. So now it's absolutely clear that we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, which Zacharias, speaking by the Holy Spirit, sees as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that Christ came. Because God is in the enterprise of then blessing all the families of the earth through the descendant of Abraham grant to us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness on the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Turn to Romans 4. That, my friends, was all introduction. I haven't gotten to talk in a couple of weeks. So if you got somewhere to be, just get up and go, and the rest of us will mock you. No, not really. I'll be done in just a moment. Because I know where we were. Three weeks ago, we made it to verse 17. That's how far we got. But now with all the knowledge that we've gained today about the Abrahamic covenant and about justification by faith, I'm now going to read verses 1 to verses 17 to get our minds collectively back into Romans 4. Next week, we will pick up right at verse 17. Fair enough? Fair
1: enough.
0: What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Absolutely, if you're a thoroughgoing Jew as Paul was, then you trace yourself back to Abraham. He's the forefather of all the Jewish nation, so what are we going to say about him according to his flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Okay, so we just read the story. When God gave him justification and gave him this promise, seven times it was recited. At any point, did God base it on the works that Abraham did? No. No. It was a unilateral covenant, an unconditional covenant, a covenant that God made with and for Abraham That he didn't require Abraham to do anything. So then it's impossible to say that Abraham was justified by his works. He was justified by his faith. A couple of weeks ago, I called the message, it has to be grace. Today, I want to emphasize it has to be faith. That's the only way that justification can possibly happen. For what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God and it was counted. It was reckoned. It was imputed to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace, as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, I can't state that emphatically enough. To the one who does not. Not work. But he believes in him who justifies the ungodly. I love the phrase he justifies the ungodly. Because you don't know me the way I know me. Ungodly. I qualify for that category. And he justifies the ungodly. And he does it because of their faith in his Finished work without any works no works zero works does not work there's no work that you can do there never has been any work Adam and Eve couldn't do any work Abraham couldn't do any work there is no work anybody can do that is good enough to obligate God and just get that out of your head and admit that he has to save you by grace and then Once you understand that and believe that, oh, grace becomes so very sweet. And your savior becomes exactly what Steve sang about this morning. Beautiful savior. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, is counted, is imputed as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing upon a man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also for we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness so how then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised well not while he was circumcised but while uncircumcised in other words Paul is making sure that nobody thinks that circumcision which was a requirement for the Jews he didn't want anybody to think that their circumcision justified them Or that their descendancy from Abraham justified them. Or that the works that they did by the law justified them. He wants to make sure that everyone understands that nothing you do justifies you. Outside of faith in the finished work of Christ, the perfect justifier. So it was reckoned, this righteousness was reckoned to Abraham while he was yet uncircumcised. As a consequence, Paul can conclude that even those who were not circumcised, which would be the Gentiles, can also have righteousness reckoned to them. Verse 12, verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a sign of circumcision, the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be reckoned to them and become the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he had been uncircumcised so Abraham becomes the father of the faithful whether it's the Jews the circumcised whether it's the Gentiles the uncircumcised we are all saved by faith through God's grace and it doesn't matter which category circumcised or uncircumcised we fall into Abraham is still the father of the faithful Verse 13, we're nearly done for the promise of Abraham or to his descendants. What promise is that? We've already established it. It's the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham. By the way, notice that post-cross, post-resurrection, Paul is still teaching about the Abrahamic covenant. So as I said before, there's no place in the Bible where the Abrahamic covenant is rescinded. It's never done away with. It's the very foundation of Paul's hope for Israel's future as well as his sense of justification. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that's exactly what we saw, that they would be heir of the world because all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. That promise was not through the law. Moses didn't exist yet. There was no law. There was no Sinai yet. But it was through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are the heirs of that promise, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, Neither is there violation of the law. So for this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise, the Abrahamic promise, the promise of salvation by grace through faith, reaching all the way back to Abraham, in order that the promise may be certain To all the descendants, Jew and Gentile, not only to those that are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Did you get enough Abraham this morning? Do you see how important he looms, not only in the history of Israel, but in the current theology of the church? And if you separate him, if you divorce him from your New Testament theology, you come away with a truncated New Testament theology because you can't fully understand the basis, the background, the underpinning of New Covenant theology if you don't understand the unconditional promises that God made to Abram. He likewise made an unconditional promise to David, but we don't have time for that this morning. But I want you to understand that right now, right here and now, right at this very moment, God is still in the enterprise of keeping the covenant promises that he made from the beginning. And you can look around the world today and see the evidence that he's still doing it. Why are the Israelites scattered? Because God said so. Are they going to be drawn back? Yeah, why? Because God said so. Why are there no more Amorites anywhere? Because God said so. But can you find a Jew anywhere?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, that's easy. They're identifiable after all these thousands of years. Why? Because God said so. He's never going to abandon them. He's never going to forsake them. And the good, good, good news for the good news for the gooder news for us is that all those promises we made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. And then by grace, we're brought in. Our hope is that we're going to be part of the new Jerusalem. That should be a clue. Jerusalem belongs to Israel. But our hope is we're going to be part of that. It's not the new church that Israel's coming into. The church is coming into the New Jerusalem because the promises, the covenants belong to Israel. So be grateful for your adoption into the family. Amen. Be grateful that God chose to give you the promises that simply were not yours by nature, that are yours by grace. Grace, 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 grace. grace, grace, grace. All right. right? Thank God Thank God. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You look very feminine this morning. Thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, sir.
1: When we talk about the, uh, the land promise going through Ephraim, um, can you talk about, like, when I think about that, I'm thinking you're saying at the exclusion of the rest of the tribes so that in the future the land promise is fulfilled only in Ephraim.
0: Right. No, it's not to the exclusion of the other tribes, but, importantly, it can't be the fulfillment of the land promised until it includes Ephraim. And right now, Ephraim isn't in the Middle East. Right now, Ephraim's scattered, as are all the northern ten tribes. And that's why the northern ten tribes, according to Israelite history, went by the nickname Mount Ephraim, that was one of their names because Ephraim became the chief tribe. Interestingly, in Israelite history, Judah becomes the chief tribe of the southern kingdom, Ephraim the chief tribe of the northern kingdom, the two very kingdoms, the two very tribes that were pointed out by Jacob. He blessed particularly Ephraim and Judah they each become the northern and southern kingdom so it's never to the exclusion of the other tribes but there are people who ever since 1948 have been saying look at the jews coming back to their land this must be the fulfillment of the bible prophecy i say no it can't be until ephraim's included which they're not yet does that make sense <laughs> So it's not exclusionary as much as it is inclusionary. Yeah? Jacob made those Joseph's sons his
1: sons. He didn't count them as grandsons, he right. counted them as sons, and Ephraim was
0: declared the first. In fact, he even said that the children were going to bear his name. They were now going to be Israelites, even though they were half Egyptian to begin with. Do you have your hand up?
1: Yeah, just when you mentioned 48. Before 48, and in in light of the covenant of Abraham, that they would always have the land, it was part of it, and then it would be expanded from what we know it now. What was it before 48?
0: It still existed. The land still existed. Israel just wasn't in it, which happened back in the time of the Babylonian captivity. God got angry enough at Israel that he took them out of their land. So the land still exists, and in God's reckoning it still belongs to Israel. Israel's just not in their land. land. Right. But then as of 1948, you saw the beginnings of Israel starting to possess the land. But most of what you see there are Jews, residents of Judah, the southern kingdom. You don't see the ten northern tribes yet being gathered again, which is what every prophet in the Old Testament says has to happen. Something else. We're good? Okay, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.